you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes You might find Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network on Mondays at 10 a.m. if you are in East Coast U.S. time, but we're totally global, so it could be any time. you have to figure out when. And you'll also find all of our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com and... Right now, if you're listening on your computer on prn.fm, if you switch over to Facebook and go to the, then search on Progressive Radio Network, you can see us live right here in Hawaii. (laughs) There's a tropical scene in back of me here, so. And um, on Visionaries, we talk to interesting people, and today we have some very interesting people. So let me just back up. I was giving a lecture on a very interesting lecture in Kansas City uh, on Louis Kahn's notion of silence and light as part of a Baroque uh, concert. And afterwards at the reception, somebody mentioned to me that NBC had a news story about a physicist who described the universe as conscious. So in our days of miracle search, go to Google, put NBC Conscious Universe, and boom, pops up. So our guest today is Greg Madloff, and he's here with C. Bangs. And um, let me just uh, let them introduce each other. So Greg, tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, good morning. It's very pleasant to be here after the experience of the A-train this morning, which was not very pleasant. Basically, I didn't start off as a consciousness researcher. I started off as a rocket scientist, and I've been funded by NASA. I'm now a consultant, an advisor, actually, to Yuri Milner on his project Starshot to send wafer sats to the stars at relativistic speeds. And I got into consciousness in a strange way, and I did it remaining an astronomer. Uh, 1970s, I submitted a paper with a friend that we thought was going to revolutionize space travel, and we were very excited about it. And of course, as often happens when you're a graduate student, you've invented a perpetual motion machine. One of the reviewers of the paper, who was very kind, is a guy who was named Evan Harris Walker. All of his friends called him Harris. That's what he referred to him as. And he told us how to save the paper, how to revise it and salvage something from it. He became a good friend and a co-author, known Harris for years. And as C will tell you, he's basically his quantum physics work has influenced her art. Anyway, as well as working in space travel, uh, Harris had started a totally new field called quantum consciousness. And he might be the first person to look into quantum theories of consciousness and how they might work inside the brain. And he had a really interesting, innovative idea that he worked out in 1970 in a paper showing how if you have two neurons separated and um, with the in between the separation, you might have electrically charged um, 
elements, and in between them, you might have a wave and electron bouncing around. And he was able to demonstrate sometimes it would tunnel through and move elsewhere in the brain. That might be how thoughts move around. This attracted a fair amount of attention, particularly with spy agencies. The CIA got very interested in this because they said, my gosh, if a tunnels, if a thought tunnels out of his, from one part of his brain to another, maybe it'll tunnel into my brain. Maybe I can apply this to spying. So the CIA funded Stanford Research Labs and a group there called the Fundamental Physics Group, spelled F-Y-S-I-C-S, to investigate uh, parapsychological phenomena. Are these the hippies who saved Yes, uh, yes. I was going to mention there's a great book about this by David Kaiser called How the Hippies Save Physics. He gives Harris a lot of airtime in this. And what happened is because this was um, in Northern California shortly after the Summer of Love, they didn't want to go to the general public. They said, if you think you're a psychic or you've had good vibes as a psychic, come in and we'll test you. I can imagine what they got. But, what the, but the best scoring psychic was a guy named Uri Geller. And he did fabulously. And I know four people who witnessed his work. Harris, one of them, another physicist, actually two other physicists, uh, Hal Putoff, and uh, Jack uh, Safadi, and an astronaut physicist whose name was Edgar Mitchell, who flew to the moon in Apollo 14, they all said the same thing. Whatever happened, it is impossible that Yuri Geller could have been cheating in the screening tests. So he was really demonstrating something. What happened, though, is he went on TV. He demonstrated he could bend forks. He made a fortune, probably at least $50 million. And later on, somebody, was, somebody who I also met who showed me he could bend forks as a trick hired a magician, the amazing Randy, to go around demonstrating he could do the same thing. And Uri and Randy have had fun for 40 years. So I saw, I witnessed this through Harris. He once came and showed me his theory and how it worked and how Uri satisfied it. And then when Uri was unmasked, he showed me the second best psychic. It didn't do it at all. So that was there. I had that in the back of my mind. So one of the figures, his great name in that group was Saul Paul Sarag, who would work as a night watchman so that he could stay up all day doing his physics. And then at night, he'd sit up his desk as a night watchman doing his physics, and he had contempt for what he called university physics. I know. So I was hanging out with uh, the people on the fringes of that group in the 70s, and it's a delight. Again, and we'll recommend this book, How the Hippies Save Physics. It is a fabulous book. And it's on audio, which is, because uh, I can't read anymore. I listen mm -hmm. to books on tape, right? And as C will tell you, she's had a couple of contacts with um, David Kaiser. He's a wonderful guy as well as an MIT physics professor. So that was in the back of my mind. So just before we go on, what's the, I'm forgetting the name of the guy at University of Arizona, the his Center for Consciousness. Stuart Hameroff. Hameroff. Yeah. And he gets attacked for his theories of uh, quantum consciousness because the critics say that uh, quantum phenomena won't happen in wet right. room temperature right. Uh, environments. Right. What happened is he is a co-author with Sir Roger Penrose, who's one of the best mathematical physicists of our time. 
and they, they did. Brett Penrose pioneered the black hole work with Hawking. Yes, he did. And right now, I believe Hawking admitted Penrose was probably right. They had a theoretical physics shoot-off about this a few years ago. But anyway, Penrose developed that theory, and Hameroff helped with it. The person who critiqued it is Max Tegmark. And he's another physicist. And basically, what Max Tegmark did is he said, no, this has to be, you have to demonstrate that quantum phenomena can occur at room or elevated temperatures. Which we now, since that, that's how birds navigate, it happens yeah. all the time. And now, and there's been at least two groups, one in India, one in Japan, which has demonstrated quantum effects do occur at this level. So Hameroff and Penrose are often flying. Tegmark has his own theory related but different from theirs. So, but but, but the, thing, the fact about the Penrose-Hameroff theory is it does have some validation now, which is very interesting, experimental validation. So, okay, the second thing that happened to bring me into the consciousness world is because of my work on space travel, I was asked to be a consultant on a science fiction novel in the early 1990s, and the person who was one of the authors of a novel is a guy named Buzz Aldrin, who was the second person to walk on the moon. And first, Buzz had me devise spaceships, solar-sailed, laser-sailing laser spaceships. So let me just interrupt again. As a kid, did you read Willie Lay's yes. Rocket Missiles and Space Travel? I did. So I here's a book from the 50s that lays out the whole thing, including plasma drives, uh, solar wind space sails, and etc. So that's that's what you're still working yeah. with. And I had gotten a lot of play with this, so Buzz wanted me to help. So I did the spaceships. They were relatively easy. Then he said, okay, I have something a little more challenging for you. Imagine that we have a star like the sun, and at the distance of the Earth from that star, there is a planet like Jupiter. Will its atmosphere be stable? Can it live there? And I looked at him and said, all of the theories say it can't. The atmosphere will evaporate. And he looked at me and said, for your PhD, you studied planetary atmospheres. Find an equation, check it. And you don't say no to Buzz Aldrin. So I found the equation, I checked it, and son of a gun, he was right. So, but then I realized I had something amazing here. Should I publish it? I was scared to. I was an adjunct professor and a consultant. I wasn't going to challenge the planetologists. And boy, was I stupid. And chicken. And you get another four-letter word on the end of chicken if you want. But whatever it was, I missed by two years predicting the existence of hot Jupiters around stars. We started finding these things all over the place. So I told myself, if ever again I have the chance to change the paradigm or challenge it, I'm going to do it. I will not be scared. So along came another friend, and he published a, um, Howard Bloom published a book called Genius of the Beast, and in this he says the role of the scientist is to come out and say it. If you have data, even if it's heretical data, you have to publish. So that's there in the back of my mind. So I'm teaching a course in astronomy at City Tech, New York City College of Technology, and talking about dark matter. And what dark matter is, is... It may not even really exist as matter. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, we don't know what's matter. Let's call it thread instead of matter. And it's one of the things that is, it, it is supposed to explain anomalous motions of stars in the outer fringes of spiral galaxies like our own. They move faster than they should. So then I was invited just after that 
my students said it's a scam. You know, this doesn't really exist. We've been looking for it for 70 or 80 years. Nobody can find it. It doesn't exist. We're at the same, same point in astrophysics that we were in 1905 with relativity theory. The paradigm has to change. And I thanked him. I stood in the back of my, this all remained in the back of my mind. And then I got an email from Kelvin Long, who at that point was editing the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. And he said, we're going to have a British Interplanetary Society in London. And Kelvin said, we're going to have a one-day symposium on the work of Olaf Stapledon. And he invited me to participate. Now, listeners, if any of you know Olaf Stapledon, he might be the most influential and least known science fiction writer of all time. Uh, he was a British philosopher in the 1930s, a PhD philosopher who couldn't make a living in philosophy. So he started writing science fiction. His masterwork, published in 1937, is called Star Maker. And in Star Maker, he predicts a lot of technological and scientific advances, many of which have come true or can come true. He's the most cited of all science fiction writers. But I had the further background. I was going to do a paper for the symposium, and I said, okay, I don't want to get involved in this technology. I want to look at his core metaphysics and see if I can test it. And his core metaphysics says the universe, to some extent, is conscious, and some of the motions of stars is volitional. In other words, that's how a star might demonstrate its consciousness by controlling its motion in some way or another. So first of all, I had to say, well, if stars are conscious, it's not going to come in through neurons, as Harris would have said. It's not going to come in through turbulence, as Penrose and Hameroff would say. But stars have molecules. And there is a concept of consciousness saying that there is a field of of proto-consciousness in the universe, and it interacts with matter through molecular bonds, something called the Casimir effect, Vacuum pressure, pressure from vacuum fluctuations is one of the things that holds the molecules together. So let's pause a moment. If we observe that galaxies are not spinning at the rate they should be, so there's previously two proposed two possibilities. One is that there's more matter than we see and we don't know what it is yet, so we just call it dark matter. It's something acting gravitationally, even though we can't see it do anything else. Or you could change the formulas for gravity and say that it, it's not uniform and it's the way it dissipates. And the third one is you're suggesting maybe the galaxy says, I think I want to go faster. Yeah. And, and also because none of the other approaches have worked experimentally, yes, you can attempt to change the laws of gravity. This will, if you change it so it works beautifully in a spiral galaxy, it does not, the change does not work in holding clusters of galaxies together. And that is a problem with that. So the people who've been searching for it, who've tried to come up with solutions, didn't work. So I said, okay. So maybe at some, maybe stars with molecules are conscious. So I would have to do some research at this point. I would have to say, okay, if stars with molecules are conscious, how does consciousness come in with the universal vacuum? But this would mean if stars with, con- with molecules are moving in a volitional fashion, there has to be a difference in their motion. 
does this exist? So I said, okay, I'm going to go and do some research. I would love to tell the listeners that I went to the 42nd Street Science Library or the NYU Bopes Library or the Columbia Pupin Library or the Warner Museum of Natural History. No. I did what everybody else does. I turned my computer on. And I typed in G-O-O-G-L-E. And then I started looking for anomalous. So you didn't even motion. use Google Scholar. You just used no, regular Google. it was Google. regular Google. And I started looking for anomalous stellar motions. And what I found blew my socks off, and I called CN. And what I learned is there is an obscure Russian observer, astronomical observer, from the Soviet era. His name is Pavel Perengo. And Perengo knew, Pavel knew, he discovered something that was in opposition to the prevailing extreme materialistic uh, ideology of the Soviets. He didn't want to go to a cold place. So as he's getting ready to publish his work, he writes a mathematical textbook, and he dedicates it to the most highly evolved human being of all times, a gentleman whose name is Yosef Stalin. He was safe. And what he said is stars a bit cool, but hotter than the sun, a bit bluer than the sun, slightly more massive, begin to move faster than the hotter, bluer stars. And this is known as Perengo's discontinuity. So I had to check this. And I went to a couple of sources. One source was from a European uh, space observatory called Hipparchos. And another is from the, one of the Bibles of, of, astro, of astronomy called um, handbook of astrophysical data and I was able to find this wonderful curve and I presented in the book that we've shown you over there starlight, star bright or stars conscious where C did the art and this what it did is this thing shows out to 260 light years, basically 500 light years in diameter this beautiful curve showing stellar motions and stars like the sun are moving typically 20 kilometers per second faster around the galaxy than hot stars. And where does the discontinuity occur? Almost exactly, or maybe exactly, as exact as I can find it, at the place where molecules come into the stellar spectra. So I published in JBIS. I had to fight to get it in because it was, once again, So heretical. let's hang on a sec. Some stars are just too hot to have molecules and only have atoms. Yeah, or they less than that, molecules or, or ions. And they, they seem to move slower. Okay. That's, and it also works a bit for moving further out for the giant stars. It's not as, not as good a curve fit, but you can still see it there. And other people have seen Perengo's discontinuity with other um, data sources as well. So it does seem to exist. But, of course, people come out with alternative explanations. And... There are a couple of explanations for if it, for it to be a local event. So let's just pause a sec before we look at those other explanations. So uh, I'm John LaBelle. We're listening to Visionaries. My guests are Greg Matloff and C. Bangs. So uh, here's their, one of their books, Starlight, Star Bright, Are Stars Conscious? Here's another one. Are these both on Amazon? Uh, this one, Starlight, Starbright, is Starbright is a basically it's an artist book and Starbright, yeah, great. And, and let, let's just get a word from a fellow 
Well, actually, both of these are fellow Pratt people. But, see, uh, tell us uh, what your background is, how you came to illustrate these books, and what you did at Pratt. And then we'll go back to our anomalous stars. <laughs> um, I'm an artist. Uh, Do you want to get a little closer to the yes. mic? Great, thanks. I'm an artist. I, I studied, I did my MFA at Pratt, an undergraduate Philadelphia College of Art. Oh, but, my but that was before, what's her name was there? Camille Paglia. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm envious of anyone at that school because they can uh, maybe bump into her in the hall. <laughs> I didn't do it. But um, my father was an engineer, so I grew up learning to think as an engineer artist, which is a very old tradition, as we all know, that, that was, that was the, that's the academic, ac academically trained artist is also trained as an engineer. So um, I, um, having, having worked as an artist, getting my MFA at Pratt, I, um, with Greg, in 2001 through 2004, worked at Marshall Space Flight Center as a NASA faculty fellow in those years. Um, cool. The first year, actually, with Greg, um, under a grant with Greg, um, working on a holographic message plaque um, that would go as a thin film on a holographic uh, solar sail. So, and I continued, I continued to do work with Greg, um, doing books together. I think of uh, myself as an artist rather than an illustrator, but it's a small point. I show at a gallery called Central Booking Art Space at 21 Ludlow Street, um, and that is a gallery that works with artists who in many different ways work with the idea of books and art and science. Terrific. So, um, so um, uh, and is, is, is your subject matter typically stars and cosmic things, or do you address other things in your art? I address other things in addition to that. Uh, currently, I'm doing an artist residency with the New York Academy of Medicine um, uh, for an exhibition that will be coming up in September called Plant Cures. Mm. And, um, and that's, um, that can be on a wide variety of topics. Um, my, my particular part of that is, called the, is a plant called the flowering pavonis, which uh, is known by many other names, but was used basically as, um, as a way of um, planning, a woman planning her, her when she would give birth. Um, it was oh, used cool. as, a, as a way of a means so of birth control. So this is a natural birth control. It is, yeah, and, yeah. and was used for millennia, but I, I have to, I, I'm continuing to follow that thread. So my work, my work has always been informed by science, engineering, and the work that I do, did with Harris um, included a lot of his quantum physics equations in, in my painting um, that I used as sacred writing because in some ways I think it is the sacred writing of our time with his knowledge and, and agreement. Great. Yeah. So before we go back to stars, one more thing. Um, how do you, in either in, as an artist or as a person, experience the quantum world? What does it mean? How does it impact you? Does, you know, well, I, I feel like it's the ground level of, of, of everything, um, or the consciousness, the, the thing that where, where consciousness perhaps um, pervades 
in the quantum world. I, I'm not sure how I would say I, I interact with it exactly, but um, I feel like it's the ground level of, of everything. Great, great. So um, let's um, get back to stars for a moment. And I'm impressed how you remember all these names. I'm just terrible <laughs> names. But uh, <clears throat> there was, you know, we, we credit Edwin Hubble with Mm-hmm. discovering the redshift. But in fact, there was some woman astronomer who had been noting that for years, but she wasn't Edwin Hubble, so mm-hmm. he had to reference her work, and we now associate... Do you remember her name? No. Neither do I. But uh, what strikes me is you'll get something like uh, you're describing these stars moving about all wrong, according to current theory and how everybody manages to ignore that um, and you find these anomalies and you know and it's like you're proposing a solution to a problem that everybody knows is there but they don't want to talk about yeah. and so but my the reason why I brought up Hub, brought up Hubble and this woman was that these things go on all the time yeah. where there'll be an anomaly and there's a sort of community of agreement to ignore it. <laughs> and uh, science is not supposed to work that way. But anyway, so you're describing different categories of stars, those with and without molecules, mm-hmm. and how they behave differently. So let's pick up the story from there. Okay. So what I had to do was investigate possible alternative solutions to this. And the leading one is something that is called a spiral arm density waves. That's a very long word to use in Scrabble or something like that. And really what it says is in the galaxy there are star-forming regions here or there which are dense nebula dust gas. And these dust clouds, if they move through a region, they might have sufficient density to drag the lower mass stars along with them. Very nice, but people have checked this observationally. It doesn't work. And also, I did a little work in support of this research, a lot of work, tedious work. I went to three reference catalogs, Herschel's, Messier's, and the new general catalog, to look at all nebula, the size of all big nebula we know of in our galaxy. None of them are big enough to fit this 500 light year sphere. You have to go outside of our galaxy to the greater Magellanic cloud, to find something called the tarantula nebula that would do it. So the theory starts to fall apart. But still, we need more proof. Now, you say the theory starts the to fall apart. Which theory? The theory of a density wave. Okay. Um, that, we'll In other the words, the, the explanation that was sort of bandied about really doesn't hold water. Right. But what we really need is proof, observational proof, that stars move this way all throughout the galaxy, which is huge, 100,000 light years across, not only in this 500 light year sphere around the sun. A couple of years ago, the Europeans launched a successor observatory to Hipparchos. It's something called Gaia, as in the Gaia hypothesis. Gaia has been gathering data on the motions and locations of a billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's pretty incredible. And what has been happening with Gaia is they've been 
putting this all together. Somehow they're going to get ready to publish. I have tried getting into their data reduction facility in Turin, Italy. I was politely, the door was politely barred in front of me, should mm. I say. No way, Jose. Uh, I contacted a colleague. There's a famous phrase, I'm not going to let you see my data. You just want to use it to prove I'm wrong. <laughs> Maybe something like that. Well, I think in their case, they want to publish first, and that's fair. This right. is, you know, it's a tremendous effort. A lot of people involved in it. They would like the credit. I contacted a colleague in Argentina, a guy named Richard Branham, and I use his work in Starlight, Starbright, and the papers that have come out of it. And basically, he wrote back to me a few days and said, I haven't had any luck getting anything from the Gaia folks either. We must all practice patience. It is hard to do, but I've learned how to do that. Anyway, another thing is, if a star is minded, and if it can volitionally change its motion, how would, he, how would it do it? Emerson, said, how would he do it? How would it do that? The most prevalent, the most likely approach is called a unidirectional jet. All infant stars, very young stars, do put out jets. They're usually bidirectional, meaning north and south, same amount of thrust either way. But in some cases, they're actually unidirectional. And there's more than enough thrust from something like that over a long period of time, say hundreds of millions or a billion years, to change a star's motion accordingly. And what I've done is I've said, well, you have to look into the farther out things also. Because of what I mentioned earlier about ESP and telekinesis, and we talked about David Kaiser's work, I agree with David, the whole thing has to be opened up again. After 50 years, or 40 or 50 years, we should put Uri Gello and the amazing Randy behind us and do really serious research on this. Because I was able to demonstrate and put it out in the paper in Journal of the British Interplanetary Society, other, other papers out in various uh, journals, um, that the type of telekinetic force that a star would need would, to change its motion by, say, 20 kilometers per second in a billion years would be equivalent to a, a human runner changing her motion in a 100-year life, lifetime by one centimeter per second. I don't know if we could even measure that, but we might want to see if we could look for it. So these stars can exercise this volition with very small amounts of energy. Yeah, well, from our point of view, a huge amount of energy. From the star's point of view, a very small amount. Right, so let's um, see if we wanna, for a few minutes, delve into something else, which is, I'll give you an easy one. What is consciousness? Oh, boy. <laughs> now, this is where I had fun. When I did the book, not so much in the papers, but in the book, I wanted to look into the different definitions of consciousness. And what I learned is that there's no consistent definition. What Harris Walker says is consciousness is everything we experience, or that can be experienced. What David Chalmers says is maybe each, he's a philosopher at NYU who's worked with panpsychism, which is really what we're testing with this, the concept that, that consciousness permeate, permeates the universe. And he would say basically that, that everything is conscious to a certain extent. Erwin Schrodinger, one of the founders of quantum physics, said there's only one consciousness and we share it. And then he became, as well as a quantum physicist, a scholar of, of Vedic knowledge. 
So, and David... And he did one other thing, which is his book, What is Life? Yes. So that he yeah. pioneered the whole DNA movement. And it was so before the invention of DNA, which was right. amazing. So it's a pretty, pretty seminal figure. Yeah. Very fa- fascinating guy. He also loved cats. Right. Schrodinger's cat. I mean, he came up with that. With, with which the we hear about regularly on Big Bang Theory. Right. He talked about Schrodinger's cat and said it's a horrible experiment. Let's not do it. People have done similar experiments on non-living things, happily, with no cat got injured in these experiments. And apparently, he's right, you know, until you open the box with the cat in it, there was a wave function with the cat alive and the cat dead. Until you look at it, you don't know which. Maybe one way around it is that the cat is conscious too, and it would know if it's alive or dead. So, But they can do it with uh, double slit experiments yeah. with buckyballs. Yeah, so we're so. getting up to not just subatomic particles, but uh, bigger and bigger clusters. This is something that Freeman Dyson has said, that at the smallest level, you seem to have mind, you seem to have volition, you seem to have consciousness at the electron, at the molecule. And of course, at our level, and as with the universe itself, you know, why, is, why are things so fine-tuned? Why is it that things are so arranged? I don't want to say designed, I want to say arranged or evolved. And the term for that is... The, the anthropic, the cosmological anthropic principle. Right. Another big, and I can mention more names: uh, Jim Barrow and. Um, so, if things were different by the billionth of a percent in any one of the law, the whole thing would blow apart, and we wouldn't yeah. have anything. Yeah, exactly. And what people, some people, the extreme materialists have come up with an alternative concept, saying, "Well, okay." This means there's one in a gazillion chances of our universe evolving for life. For life. So why not have a gazillion universes and we just live in the right one? This is called the multiverse theory. And unfortunately, there is no way to test observationally between the multiverse theory and the anthrop- anthropomorphic principle. Well, uh, but uh, David Deutsch's argument is... A quantum computer achieves its immense power by harnessing its siblings in parallel universes. Okay. So he says he can demonstrate it. Okay. Maybe, so maybe, you know, I mean, what I'm saying is from an observational point of view, it's very hard. If not, right. And also... Unless gravity leaks from one to another. Yeah. And, of course, you have to talk about not just a few of the universes, a gazillion of the universes. Every particle, every time it does anything, makes multiple yeah. more universes. I once heard a talk, like she was with me a couple of years ago at the New York Academy of Sciences, where uh, Paul Davis, a famous cosmologist, was talking about this. In the middle of his talk, it occurred to me that the cosmological principle is infinitely less complex so by Occam's razor, one of the basic rules of philosophy, physics, and of course our civilization, you should select the less complex of the two phenomena, of the, of the two theories. So I came up to him afterwards, since I know Paul from the uh, SETI community, and I had a good chat with him and said, and he agreed that this was true, but then he said, you know, there was another principle that our civilization rests on, and this is the Copernican principle, which says there is no such thing as a preferred reference system. 
So that little bit of quantum foam up there stabilized to become our universe. What about that one? What about that one and that one? And we just see watches, we both cracked up because he demonstrated the whole, I guess it is a crisis for thought that we're in right now. And it goes back to the bedrock. How would you describe the crisis? Basically, post-Renaissance civilization rests on these two people. Copernicus, no preferred reference place, reference frame, and uh, Oakham, William Oakham, who says, pick the simplest of the two hypotheses if there are competing ones. And they've generally been in agreement. Now they are not in agreement, and that's a crisis. How do we solve it? Maybe we can someday get more data. One guy, um, uh, Lee Smolin, who's one of the originators of the multiverse theory, has now come out against it, which is interesting, and said maybe you have alternate universes in time and not in space. Hmm. In other words, time has a reality beyond our universe. It's a very interesting work that he did with this. Uh, he co-authored it. Uh, Lee Smolin, I forget the name of the co-author. I don't remember all names. It's called... Uh, the singular universe and the reality of time. Mm. And, he and he basically argues that time in the universal sense does have a direction and may actually be in existence even in some form even before the universe is there. And it might be considered a heretical idea, but it's out there and it's very interesting. So, um, do you feel that there's a general field of consciousness and we participate in that or that um, is our consciousness somehow special and more intense and unique in the universe? Uh, have you thought about those kinds of things? Okay. I would say yes to both of them. I think there is a universal field of consciousness which, which Dave uh, Sharma has called the proto-consciousness field. This permeates the universe and it comes into molecular matter through these molecular, through the universal unconscious, the Casimir effect, not universal unconscious, universal vacuum, the Casimir effect working on molecular bonds. But then you have some So let's describe the Casimir effect. Okay. If you have two, the Casimir, uh, Casimir was a physicist, a Dutch physicist working in the post-war era. And he was very interested in the bond that holds the water molecules together. And he noted that with his calculations, only about 70 or 80 percent of this was due to the known electromagnetic forces. And he did some very interesting reasoning and said you have these vacuum fluctuations. The vacuum is very dynamic. It's not, it doesn't, we used to think it has nothing in it. It has everything in it, but it doesn't last for very long. Negative and positive things balance each other out. And he was able to demonstrate that not all of these fluctuations will fit between two atoms in a molecule. So there's a pressure pushing the molecule together. And it was a nice theory called the Casimir effect, and it couldn't be validated experimentally until 1998 when nanotechnology had evolved to the appropriate point. And I then, thought you could demonstrate it just with two very smooth plates. Exactly, of metal. exactly. Starting in 1998. Oh, well, okay. Okay. The, the Romans knew it probably existed without knowing it because if they took two metal plates, they stuck together or hard to separate. 
but it had to be demonstrated that Casimir was on the right, ro right road mathematically. And in 1998, uh, the researcher first did now, this. Now, if you go way back to the 50s, they would just say the bouncing molecules tend to interact and lock together, right? Yeah. And that's why they got stuck. Yeah, that's why they got stuck. So what happened was uh, they took two, I forget the name of the group. See, I don't remember all names. I forget the name of the group that did it. They took these two charge plates separated of metal, electrically charged, separated by maybe something like a millionth of a meter, a micron. They pushed it together, they moved it apart, and they were able to demonstrate that Casimir was absolutely correct. And the Casimir effect is now part of established mainstream physics. It's been confirmed many times. So, okay, then we talk about complexity. This would demonstrate that somehow little bits of molecules have a proto-consciousness. How do they manifest it? They join up with other bits of molecules. Maybe they change phase. They can't do a whole lot. They're not going to write uh, the odes of Homer over Shakespeare, or the poems of Homer over Shakespearean sonnet. That's beyond that. So let's, let's stop at that point. And um, first of all, let me ask, uh, uh, let me ask C, do you, what is your feeling about this consciousness discussion? Is this something you experience? You have feelings about it? Do you encounter other things as conscious? Well, the, you know, it's a, actually a very, very, it's an ancient idea. It's humankind's ancient idea that, that the cosmos was alive. And, and we collectively believed that for, for millennia until uh, Descartes and others came along and, and the separation began that, that we, aren't, we aren't living in a conscious universe, that, that things are, are no longer conscious. So, um, yeah, I, ex I experienced it. And I think, you know, also that I was very interested in the work of the Transcendentalists, which, which talked to that and, and approached those ideas. So, yes, I, I definitely cool. live there. Yeah. Cool. So let me get back to, um, there, let's just say there is generalized consciousness that it gathers in some places like stars, will we be able to communicate with that? Okay, that, that depends first of all on complexity theory and what I think Giulio Tonio is his name basically put together something called integrated information theory. The, the larger your array of molecules or neurons or whatever, the more interconnectivity and the more consciousness. Now, this is how complexity theory comes into it, how our minds, I'm smarter than that fountain pen, for instance, probably. I think I'm more conscious than it anyway. Maybe it would disagree. But can we communicate with things like stars? I know that Rupert Sheldrake in the United Kingdom thinks you can. And I'm, maybe it's possible, other people have looked at this too, my problem with communicating with it is that a star lasts, our sun has a life expectancy of 10 billion years. Human beings at most last 100 years. So a human lifetime, a little more than 100 years, so a human lifetime is about a second in the lifetime of the star. How do you communicate with such, a, with such an individual, with such an entity, with such a being? Uh, would it, does it even recognize our existence? 
Now, I know what Sheldrake has said is that they look upon the planets, the stars look upon the planets as their children. And maybe the life forms, the integrated ecosystems on these planets, if any, are their grandchildren. But would they be able to recognize individuals in that? I don't know. Um, I did, there are people, other people who are looking at it and not admitting it, but they are looking into this. I gave a talk at the last, at the Science of Consciousness con conference, and she was there too, in 2016 in Tucson, Arizona. I don't know if you were at that one. I didn't go to that one, but I actually presented a paper maybe five years before okay, that. Okay, then you know what they're like. And I found myself being very, very busy. I was helping see with the art show. I had a poster up, and all of a sudden, at the last minute, Stuart Hameroff came in and called me and said, there's been a cancellation in a panpsychism session. You're on. You're presenting. <laughs> Great. So I had a very busy Wednesday evening there. And in the middle of one of these things, at the end, I was sort of exhausted. A young man came up to me and said, okay, I have to speak to you. I'm a little shy about it. He's a musician. And he's a musician. He works in an astronomy team studying helioseismology, which is basically the vibration, vibrational signature in the radio spectrum of different stars. Each one is different. And he works, I, I thought it was University of Michigan. It might be University of Minnesota. But anyway, it's his job to look for patterns. In other words, is there a pattern? Might one star be communicating with another? And I said, So let me just interrupt. Anything like this, there's a big bang theory about that, in which uh, um, Raj, the Indian, is an astrophysicist, and he asked Sheldon, the genius, to come in and, you know, you got some time, sit in front of this, and let's see if you see any patterns. And Sheldon says, oh, well, here's one. And Raj says, what do you mean it takes six months to do? <laughs> he says, well, they just pop out. I mean, don't you see all the prime numbers as red? <laughs> so, so, yeah, you know, these patterns start showing up. Anyway, go ahead. Well, the young musician said it's actually very, very hard. He hasn't found anything definite yet as of a little more than a year ago. And when he finds it, I presume they will publish because there's another guy um, in, um, in Europe, a guy named uh, Clement Vidal, who's been able to put work out in Ac Ast Acta Astronautica, got through peer review and everything. And what he's looked at is a certain class of binary star called, I think, parasitic binaries. And he's able to demonstrate that these stars satisfy 19 of the 20 biological requirements for being life forms. It sort of cool. blew me away to find cool. that. So there's other peop people doing this. The most famous person who's looked at it is a guy who wrote a book called The Self-Organizing Universe. His name was Eric Yonch. He wrote it in 1981, shortly before his death at Berkeley, of what was called a rare, very painful disease. I would suspect, I would suspect AIDS. J-A-N-T-S-C-H is his last name. If you look for the book on Amazon, you could purchase it for about $400. I took it out of the City University oh, Library. Oh, I've, I've got one on my shelf. You do? Have Eric <laughs> Sure. That's great. I was do. reading all this stuff years ago. Let me just interrupt, and because we're going to run out of time soon, and run through some of the people we've mentioned that listeners might want to follow up with. 
So sort of one of the um, then mothers of this whole thing is, is Stuart Hameroff. He's an anesthesiologist, and he says, what exactly happens when I put somebody under <laughs> anesthesia? And um, what he decided was, what are those things in the nerves? The Well, the tubulins. Tubulins. Yeah. Uh, that consciousness is not in the neurons, but in the tubulin, the which are little fibers within the dendrites and axons. Mm-hmm. So there's billions more of those yeah. than there are neurons. And the people who think that they can emulate oh, yeah. mind in a computer, when presented with this, first they reject it. And they say, well, even if it's true, that means it's It'll take five more years <laughs> of doubling before we yeah. get there. But he, he runs a conference annually at, um, it alternates now with Arizona and Italy, and, right? Well, with Arizona and someplace else in the world. I think the last one was in Italy. We right. did, this year, I was inundated with, inundated with astronautics conferences, so I skipped the consciousness one. Uh, there's only so many of these things you can prepare right, for. Right, right. Uh, and... But he's you know, the work that he's done, and incidentally, he and um, uh, Penrose are not the only people who've looked at tubulins as conscious entities. The greatest microbiologist of the late 20th century, Lynn Margolis, who was the first wife of Carl Sagan, wrote a paper called The Conscious Cell. And she, in the early, I believe the early and mid-90s, demonstrating that tubulins are more significant than neurons. Right. So she's a a major figure, and her theory of symbiogenesis is an alternative to natural selection in evolution. So that's someone else our listeners might want to look up. And then, uh, again, I can't mention too strongly how the hippies save physics, Mm -hmm. because it just covers a whole... What what happened was quantum theory had become... um, the famous phrase was shut up and calculate. In other words, what does this weirdness mean? Let, that's philosophy. We don't talk about that. And uh, um, the, this group of uh, people who are on the periphery of academic positions started uh, thinking about that, which involved going to Essel Institute and taking acid. Uh, but, uh, and they looked at a lot of uh, psychic research. And then um, there's kind of a weird person, but but very important for a lot of things, Ed Fredkin. And he proposes that the universe is a giant calculating computer. And he's very rejecting of quantum theory because he wants a very mechanistic um, digital atomic behavior uh, to make his theory work. And then uh, another person who's not happy about quantum theory is Stephen Wolfram, who uh, in his A New Kind of Science uses the sort of an, an analogy of cellular uh, one-dimensional cellular automata and uh, finds that what he calls Rule 30 actually can be a Turing machine and that he says, what's this looking for life in the universe? It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, if we define it as um, uh, informational activity, there's informational activity everywhere. It's just a matter of degree. So these are some of the people that you might want to definitely read um, Starlight, Star Bright by Greg Madoff, illustrated by C. Bangs. But also, you know, you'll follow some of these other figures, and there's a whole world out there. 
So uh, let's you know take a few minutes to wrap up. Let, tell us what what you what your teaching involves and what else you're doing, and maybe we'll come back for another discussion to pursue more of this. Okay, the teaching that I'm doing right now is astronomy to undergraduates at New York City College of Technology that should call itself City Tech. So let's stop for a moment. So astronomy used to mean somebody you know at Mount Palomar looking through a 200-inch mirror telescope. What is astronomy today? It has evolved into astrophysics. And what is the, definite, the difference between an astrophysicist and an astronomer? And one person quipped and said, astronomers sometimes look through telescopes. Astrophysicists only look through computers. Okay. And what's happened today is very few people go out and actually take the data. Um, in fact, I know among the SETI people, Jill Tarter once told me this after the movie Contact came out, nobody's going to wake up and put earphones on and, and go out and sit in the observatory parking lot. No. Your telescope is working automatically, listening for radio signals. If it finds anything interesting, it'll ping you at home. And this is the way many, many people are gathering the data today. These spacecraft like Gaia, you know, Kepler, for instance, has discovered more than 3,000 planets circling other stars. Nobody has looked at them through a telescope, but we're now pretty sure, in some cases, virtually certain they're there. Gaia is looking at motions and um, positions of a billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Once again, nobody is checking this with a small telescope. So the whole thing has changed tremendously. Um, and you guys have to be able to do quantum stuff now since it, you've got black holes bugging you. It works at all levels. You have to go down to the quantum level. And also with spacecraft design, uh, light pressure, the pressure of the photon, is a quantum event. And when you're designing a big spacecraft, let's say an interstellar arc or something like that, you have to be able to... So there's, there's a topic for when you come back. Yeah. We'll talk about your spacecraft that we'll go to that. Other, stars. other stars. But the interesting thing is, without getting into details now, you have to be able to look at it at the nano level, the molecular level, and then also talk, talk about something that might be a thousand kilometers across at the very big level. So astronomy and or astrophysics or astrodynamics, what have you, works at many, many different levels, from the very small to the very large. I had the uh, uh, when he was had before he was discovered, uh, Carl Sagan wrote a book called um, what was it? The, his first book with, with Sokolovsky. Intelligent Life in Intelligent Life in the Universe, yeah. And it sort of surveyed everything, and it was sort of an underground book, and then he did the uh, uh, Cosmic Connection yeah. book. But I went to interview him at Cornell, and I said, at one point, I said, well, what about the implications of quantum theory? He says, irrelevant. <laughs> uh, uh, relativity deals with big stuff like astronomy. Uh, quantum theory deals with small stuff. We astronomers don't have to be uh, concerned with that. And then, of course, um, uh, black holes totally yeah. changed all that. Yeah. Black holes and radiation pressure. So it's, to me, it's an extremely dynamic time to live in. It's fascinating. Today, you, I mean, it used to be you'd publish a paper, 
and it might be decades until results came in, either proving it wrong or right. Today, this has been, everything's been compressed into a period of maybe months or a few years. We work at at a different pace and a different level. So one of the things I'll ask you next time, are what are your young colleagues doing that, you know, you're happy with, you're unhappy with? Uh, so maybe we could wrap up with that. Okay. Some of them are getting, are still very much involved in the search for dark matter. And that's because if they're teaching graduate students, graduate student might be doing that for his or her thesis. Some are looking at this whole concept of dark energy, which, dem which seems, to it seems to be a possible explanation for the fact that the expansion of the universe might be speeding up. That's really depressing, right? It is that very, means we're yeah, going to yeah. end with a heat death. Yes, but of course it may yet change its mind. If oh, it's okay. Universal it may mind. turn around and come back again. One, one person said maybe it's taking a deep breath. Okay. It's inhaling, it's exhaling, and then it will inhale. So, so uh, my guests have been uh, Greg Matloff and C. Bangs. Next time we'll talk more to C. Bangs about her art. And if we prepare, if you guys can come back again sometime, we can prepare the images in advance so that mm -hmm. uh, we can see them on screen. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about is the universe conscious? So this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. And join us again next Monday.